1: Tonight light everybody so glad you could make it with us tonight first of all I want to thank Ken quiethawk for his amazing intro His voice always amazes me You can find him and his wife at nativestorytellers.com fabulous website Native American storytellers have been you know preserving history for generations and it's an amazing magical wonderful way to learn history and Mythology and mysticism, and all sorts of wonderful things. So, please check it out when you get a chance. Also, a simple quick reminder that this is a very unusual week for us, and we'll be on again on Saturday at 3 p.m. So, if it happens to be a rainy day, or if you happen to want to take a break from whatever you're doing, Saturday, 3 p.m. Nightlight, don't miss this show. It's another absolutely good one. But for tonight, Mark has amazing people here for us, and he is stretching our our um, our eclectiveness here with this show. And he's bringing on bunches and bunches of amazing people with different topics. And um, I'm always fascinated by the people that he brings in because they're always absolutely amazing, fascinating, and educational and insightful. Also entertaining, which is the most important part, of course. So. Mark, welcome to tonight
2: is is collectiveness even a
0: word It is now <laughs> okay I have my own yeah.
1: little you know addendum to the dictionary
2: <laughs> yeah how 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 how's your uh week been so far
1: well, aside from losing my voice last night so I couldn't do my show, it's been just fabulous, <laughs> okay.
2: I'll just uh, yeah, just uh, take it easy. We have uh, a couple uh, very knowledgeable guests who uh, are pretty much just going to take over for the next two hours, and I, I, I'm just excited to hear them. Yeah. So, uh, how should we get started? Like maybe with like a alakazam, we are live," and you know when.
1: I think it's abracadabra
2: at, uh, alakazam. <laughs> oh, is that okay? Um, <clears throat> yeah, when when we look at uh, you know the pop culture of the early twentieth century twentieth uh, uh, century and names like uh, Jack London is called the wild and come to mind and and you know, the uh, development of silent movies and Charlie Chaplin and Mary Pickford, you know, Robert Frost was writing uh, Stopping by the Woods on a Snowy Evening, Booth uh, Tarkington uh, won the Pulitzer Prize for the Magnificent Ambersons. But the name that stands above all these artists was Harry Houdini. And you know, pulling a Houdini has uh, been a phrase uh, used for about the last uh, century referring to you know, escaping from difficult situation it's used in tony Carey's uh song uh, a fine fine day uh Houdini's leather jacket drew a lot of attention when it was uh brought into uh the shop on uh, uh pawn stars there's the uh recent mini series was it like it was on back in i think january
1: yeah uh, it was a couple they were Fascinating yeah. shows.
2: Yeah, you know what? And it, it, they were hosted by uh, uh, Houdini's great nephew, George Um uh, and they were I- examining the props and, uh, you, know, uh, you, you know, looking at how he uh, did his stage acts. So, uh, to discuss uh, Houdini's life and legacy. Uh, we have magicians, and Dorothy is also an escape artist. Uh, <laughs> uh, but there are, our guests are also the curators of Scranton, Pennsylvania's Houdini Museum, and our guests are Dick Brooks and Dorothy Dietrich. So, uh, welcome, welcome, Dick and Dorothy. How are you two tonight?
3: I'm well How are you? Oh, fine.
4: I'm fine too
2: good good glad glad you're uh, uh able to join us tonight uh you know it's just what uh 2 days ago was H- Houdini's birthday so uh, uh what do you call it through serendipity you, you're with us uh uh you know just right after his birthday to uh, give us an education on Harry's life. So maybe we should, since it's his birthday, uh, yeah. Maybe we should just start off with just a a general uh, biography of where Harry was born and how he ended up in Wisconsin
4: and (laughs) Scranton.
2: Yeah, and and, 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 (laughs) Scranton. Yeah, we're going to get to all that and so so, so much more. It's just really a, a fascinating subject. So uh, you know, so if you want to start off there at the beginning of his life, uh, that would be a good start.
3: Well, basically, Houdini's family uh, is from Budapest, Hungary. And uh, as a, when Houdini was four years old, he came to America uh, with uh, with his mother because his father had taken a job in Wisconsin as a rabbi for a local congregation. And um, so his um, magic career didn't start until his teen years, but it was rough going for his family. His father was, I guess you could say he, he was very, uh, very professional as a rabbi, but he was very old world and uh, it was a new country and the, you know America was kind of looking forward to the future and it looks like the congregation was looking for someone that wasn't so um uh old world and he ended uh-huh. up not uh, being able to keep that job there so that was a stress on the family on their financial needs and uh so the the stay in Appleton Wisconsin was only for a few years And uh, so uh, Houdini, by the time he turned 12 years old, life was still rough around the house as far as uh, paying the bills. And so uh, he ended up running away from home, thinking he would seek his fortune and that would be the only way he could help his family Uh, because there was nothing going on.
4: He often said uh, the greatest escape I ever did was the day I left Appleton, Wisconsin, because uh, that enables him to uh, get to the outside world and uh, start on his journey.
2: Okay. So uh, what – it doesn't sound like there was much in Appleton that would foreshadow becoming – uh, a, a master, world-renowned master escape artist. Uh, uh, other than wanting to get out of <laughs> his childhood home, is, yeah. is there is, is there something from that time period that
0: uh,
2: you, you know got him interested in escaping from the milk can or something like that?
3: I think the <clears throat> everything in Houdini's life kind of happened uh one thing after another when he started out in magic started out as the king of cards because uh, cards were very affordable he was at the time in New York City and uh you could get playing cards for free at the local uh, gaming houses you know they had the private gaming houses and they would only use the deck for a few a few games, and then they would burn the deck. In other words, throw them away. The Houdini could pick up cards pretty easily. And a friend of his was um, T. Nelson Downs, who was known as the King of Coins. To this day, T. Nelson Downs is considered uh, the master of coin manipulation. And uh, so he suggested to Houdini, he said, you kind of need a gimmick. You need... You need something that's you, that identifies you. And so uh, T. Nelson was the king of coins. Houdini decided, let's do the king of cards because he was good at it. And that was huh? something that he could f- afford to put together. And there's a very beautiful poster of Houdini as the king of cards. And there actually is video footage, film footage of Houdini doing card manipulations. And he was really very good. So any anyone that... The questions, whether Houdini was a good magician or just a good publicist, boy, he, he was the best at everything. He was really very talented and very, he practiced constantly and he was very physically fit. So he was a uh, uh, all around um, working on his success constantly. It wasn't like he got lucky.
4: In fact, we okay. show some of that film footage of him uh, playing cards. Uh, using cards and doing card manipulations at our tour here uh, in Scranton, PA. And uh, we do that on weekends now and then in the summer uh, every single day. And we have the honor of being the only building in the world uh, dedicated to Houdini.
2: Cool. uh, And are are you... uh, uh, you what, what exit from interstate, what 81 would you need to take to get to the uh,
3: Basically, from museum. anywhere you would go, yeah, 81 is a very main highway. You go to exit 190 and make a left, and it doesn't matter which direction you're coming from, that exit you're going to make a left, whether you're coming from the north or south and uh, go exactly two miles, and we'll be on the right-hand side. They, and it is basically it it is called the main avenue exit. So you just get off, like
4: Dorothy said, make a left. If you drive two miles and look at your odometer and turn off your car uh, engine, you'll probably be exactly in front of our building.
3: Okay, cool. Now, the okay, cool. Uh, the museum is open every weekend, Year round by reservation. We suggest that you reserve before driving a distance to get to us, because it sells out all the time. We don't we don't have a million seats. We only seat about 60 people, so um, it's a pretty popular place to go on the weekends. And then of course on a rainy day we are packed. We usually sell out on a rainy day, so um, always always call ahead. The the tickets. Um, at the door are the retail price, but then we discount it. If you call ahead with a credit card in advance, it's quite a deep discount between adults and, and kids. And uh, the kids' price start from 11 and younger. Now, it's a really cool event. What we do is we decided to make it a, a fun family event, whether you're two adults, uh, two seniors, two uh, teenagers out looking for something to do, or a whole family with kids. It's appropriate for any any group, and it's all in good taste. We start off, it's about a two-and-a-half to three-hour experience while you're here. We start off at 1 o'clock in the afternoon with a short video with rare film footage of Houdini in our theater and, uh, and then um, take the audience on a fun guided tour through the Houdini collection, telling some fun stories about him, and, and then back into the theater for the most fun, fabulous magic show, with real professional magicians featuring the beautiful doves, a duck, a rabbit, a poodle. We even levitate an audience member in the air, pass the hoop, and float them back down. It couldn't be more fun. The um, uh, There's a lot of comedy, all in good taste, a lot of fun uh, the whole time. And then at the end of the show, there's a little souvenir demo. It's it's a magic show, but it's all of the tricks that are available from the store that people could buy if they're inspired by the magic or if they want to bring something home to a family member or friend. And then of course we have t-shirts and mugs and, and souvenir programs, which is uh, a pretty complete package. And people have a blast. They really have a good time.
2: Okay. Well, uh, as we get closer to the summer uh, vacation seasons, you know, you just gave, uh, you know, mom and dad, you know, some great ideas to bring the family there for, uh, you know, stop over on their way to the uh, beach or heading up to New England, wherever their destination is. Yeah, well, you know, what is. It, you know
3: here's, here's what's very interesting is that we get people from, not just that are coming to visit the Poconos, we get people that are coming from Europe that are coming to visit uh, the States and this is one of the things that they want to do when they're in, in the U.S. So it's very we're very proud of that you know that people are mm-hmm. so curious about Houdini's life and they want to see the collection and uh, and hear our stories about Houdini because we this is all we've ever done for since I'm a kid since Dick is a kid is do magic and also our passion for Houdini has been constant We've been researching every inch, uh, ounce of Houdini's life and trying to figure out all the things that have been a question, uh, the the little gaps in his life that people are not sure about. Uh, there was a really cool um, thing that happened just two years ago that you would think by this time in our life that we would know pretty much anything that's, uh, that there is to know about Houdini's story. But there is a story that I don't know if you knew about Houdini's, um, mirror Handcuff Challenge by the Daily Mirror Newspaper Company from London, England. It happened in 1904. This guy comes to the theater and he says, Mr. Houdini, we have this challenge and this is the, the world's only double locking handcuff. They were created by Nathaniel Hart. He's a locksmith and he has been working on this for five years and he believes that he has the one thing that will stump the great Houdini. Will you take our challenge? Well, of course, Houdini's, you know, he's got to take it. Because if he didn't take the challenge, what do you think the headline would
2: be? Yeah, he, uh, he, he's going to be laughed he, off the we, stage.
3: Yeah, we stumped the great Houdini, you know. What kind of a great great escape artist? He won't take this challenge. Just, just a pair of handcuffs. So he took the challenge and it was, it was really dramatic. They booked it at the Hippodrome Theater in, in London, England, and the place was packed. You couldn't get a seat, and there were also uh, dozens of people out in the street that couldn't get in, but they wanted to be nearby, and they wanted to hear the story. What's happening? Is he going to succeed or fail? Well, there are lots of uh, stories about that whole event. There was a crowd, I mean, a crowd of writers, magazine and newspaper writers that showed up. And they all wanted to be on stage with Houdini to make sure that nobody was there to help him out. There was no way this guy is going to uh, pull a fast one on anybody. So they, uh, Houdini had asked, uh, he said, I don't want to reveal what I'm doing. So if you could have a cabinet or a curtain, I could stand behind or something. And that was probably one of Houdini's only mistakes that I've ever found. And that was that he didn't describe exactly what he wanted for that uh, because they built this little cabinet. It was like, I would say, it's about three feet tall and um, a little square thing, just big enough for a person to squeeze into. And it's covered on all four sides and the top with black fabric. So now he's got to scrunch down into this thing. So he's got no room in there, but it's also pitch dark. He can't see a thing. There he is in this, this little, this little tiny cabinet. And I like, what's he gonna do now when he sees this thing? He can't. He can't say, uh, "Well, uh, you see, I probably should have told you, but uh, that's too small, and I want to be able to see." Blah blah. He would have been laughed off the stage. So he had to just suck it up and do it. So there he is, he goes inside the cabinet, and they had a a live orchestra booked for this thing, playing dramatic music uh, through the event. You can imagine the tension in the crowd, because this has got to be a big deal. Is Houdini going to make it? Is he not going to make it? What's going to happen? Now, the the truth is, nobody really wanted to see Houdini fail. However, if it was possible that Houdini was going to fail, you sure wanted to be there that day, right? So there right. he goes. He's inside the cabinet after a pretty short time. He comes out, and he's like, the hands, the hands come through the curtain, and uh, the audience is like, oh, he's free. Is he free? And uh, he comes out and he goes, no, no, no. I, I just, I, I just have to stretch a minute. I broke my foot on this tour. So I just have to, you know, like just rearrange my, my feet and my legs to get some blood flowing over there. It's killing me. And so he stretches. He goes back in. And many minutes later, many minutes later, now he comes out again. And they're like, is he free? Is he free? No, he's not free. He says, uh, And he's dripping wet. You can see he's, like, really sweating. And he says, I just need a glass of water. I feel like I'm going to pass out. It's very hot in there. Can I just get a glass of water? So now this whole committee of newspaper and magazine writers, they've got to decide. They've got to be the official committee to decide. What are we going to allow for this guy? Are we going to allow him to have a drink of water? And they kind of look at each other. What do you think? I don't know. What do you think? Uh, I don't know. either. It's a the, the glass of water. What's the big deal? Give him a glass of water. One guy says, no, we shouldn't give him a glass of water. You're like, why not? Well, what if there's something in it? Well, what could be in it? Well, acid? And it's <laughs> like, no, if he drinks acid, he's going to die. No, he, there's nothing you can put in water that will help you open a pair of handcuffs. Nothing. So they give him a glass of water. So he goes back inside, and the orchestra's playing again. And after many minutes more, he comes out again. And he's he's well, the audience is like, okay, what, what? And you can see Houdini's wife is backstage. She's pacing back and forth. And it's visibly, visibly noticeable that she is really nervous. She's a wreck. And she's trying to talk with the, his Houdini's assistants, and they will not let her or the assistants get anywhere near Houdini. You can be sure they're not going to let them help him out. So uh, he comes out again, and she's looking, and no, he's not free. And she's like, ah, oh. oh, this is terrible. And so he says, um, uh, listen, uh, I just need a, I need a pillow for my knee. I just, can I get a pillow? I, to, to, I want to <laughs> like kind of lift the foot off the stage. But my, my foot is killing me. And if I could just get a pillow, and they're like, a pillow. I don't know. What do you think? Should we give him a pillow? I don't know. What do you think? I don't, I don't know. Should we give him a pillow? I'd give him a pillow. I don't know. What if there's Something in the pillow? What do you mean? What's it? What would what, be in a pillow? It's a pillow. Well, maybe somebody stuffed something in there to help him out. Well, check the pillow and then give him a pillow. So they decide, yep, give him a pillow. After many minutes more, he comes out another time, and he's still not free. His wife, she's got to She has had it. She's had it. She can't take it anymore. She's sobbing. She, she says, I can't take it anymore. And she leaves. The whole audience is like, oh, well, if she has no hope, there can't be, be much hope left, right? I mean, she knows the guy. She knows if it's possible or not possible, so she's going. So there's a guy in the crowd that goes,
2: You can
3: do this, Houdini, keep going. And then the crowd starts roaring, Yeah, do it, yeah. So, <laughs> excuse me, Houdini goes back inside the cabinet with the pillow under his knees. And after many minutes more, it comes out another time, okay? <laughs> another time he's out. So they're like, okay, what? <laughs> he says, uh, could you take off the cuffs for a second so I can get... He is pale as could be. He is sweating. even like It's just awful. He's just really... You can see the man's exhausted and uh, soft for a second so that I can just get the coat off and I'll go back in. You put the cuffs back on, I'll go back in. And they're like, what do you think? Should we take off the cuffs? I don't know. What do you think? we should? I don't know. If I, I don't think I want to take off the cuffs. He probably wants to just see how the lock works. I don't think we should. What do you think? I don't know. I don't no, I don't I don't I'm not I'm not feeling good about this. I don't think we should take off the cuffs. So the one guy says, OK, Mr. Houdini, the only way we'll take off those cuffs is if you will admit you're defeated. So he's like, ah. <laughs> so he makes a big sigh. And then he reaches in his pocket to get his little pocket knife. And he flips the coat up over his head. And he starts ripping the coat to
1: shreds.
3: Okay, so now the coat is like shredded and the crowd is going crazy. They're like, yeah,
1: do it.
3: Yeah. So he's got the coat off. It's in shreds. And he goes back inside the cabinet. And finally, after an hour and ten minutes, Houdini comes out and he's got the cuffs. Free. He, the crowd roared they roared a second time and they roared a third time and scooped him up and carried him around the theater like a superhero and then out into the street to show the people outside yes he is the true king of handcuffs so it was spectacular you can imagine the buzz around town and so now Houdini is the true king of handcuffs so you would think that that would be the end of the story wouldn't you
2: You would think, but this is Houdini.
3: But now, two years ago, there's an auction. (laughs) And what is in the auction? It's a newspaper called the Tatler News, and it's from London, England, from 1904. And there's a picture of Houdini on the cover with the mirror handcuffs and the key to the mirror handcuffs. And they're different than the ones that we always thought were the mirror handcuffs. So, wait a minute. What happened to the original handcuffs? And why don't we know where they are? Where do you think they are? Uh,
2: Could they be at the museum?
4: Nope would be a good place for
2: them
3: but that yeah. would be a great place for them if they existed so here's what i came up with the funny thing is when that happened all over the internet there were all these buzz people that are <clears throat> Houdini fans and handcuff fans they're all like maybe it's that why i don't know who do you think would have the original one and they're like in in one hour there was 800 and uh, uh, 385 um <clears throat> you know uh, what do you call it uh, text in, in the in the one podcast, it was nonstop. People were how about this? I don't know. Maybe it was this idea. And I was chuckling the whole time. I thought, wow, this is a hoot. Because if you think about Houdini, all right, you got to know that if he got out of those handcuffs, at that time in his life, there all of a sudden were handcuffed artists everywhere. Now, this was his act. He created the Handcuff Act. You could bring your own handcuffs, your own chains, ropes, padlocks, lock him up, and he would get out. And so now, here's the problem. Everywhere he went, there were people calling themselves the new Houdini or better than Houdini. He couldn't go anywhere without running into these guys. So he had several things that he did. There was one thing he did. We have a wonderful program on display at the Houdini Museum, which says, Um, How handcuffs, tricks are done by the imposters. The whole swindle shown for a penny at the next door to the, there was one of these guys working the Empire Theater and Houdini would send his assistants out to expose them to, to show the methods of these other guys, but not Houdini's secrets. So here's what Houdini probably felt at the time. What if one of these guys Says to the Daily Mirror newspaper company, hey, you know what? It took Houdini an hour and 10 minutes to get out. I'll get out in half that time. He couldn't have that because what if they actually could escape? Maybe they could escape in 10 minutes. Maybe Houdini just stretched it out. Maybe it wasn't that hard for Houdini to do it. Who knows? We'll never know that. But I do know for sure, sure, that Houdini was not going to allow those handcuffs to be in anybody else's hands to embarrass Houdini. So they are either at the bottom of the Thames River in London or uh, he melted them down and made a new pair <laughs> that that you can't get out of. Huh.
4: And those huh. are... So any, okay. any, uh, any cuffs that you see that are the mirror cuffs, uh, they may be from Houdini's day or not, But they are probably not the actual original uh, mirror cuffs that he got out of. Uh, We have one on display here. In fact, I think we're the only place that has a a public display uh, of the mirror cuffs that
1: are
2: available to the general public. Okay, so isn't
3: that an amazing story?
2: Yes, it is. And you know what? What you're, Dorothy, what you're talking about. It was also very interesting about um his uh competition and always trying to stay one step ahead of everyone else um uh, what what are some of the other uh stage acts that he was doing that uh, just uh, just set him uh, above everyone else?
3: I'm looking at the... Uh, I'm at the museum right now, so I'm looking at the uh, the one artifact that we have, which is very cool. So in, in order to um, keep his place in the business, he decided to write a book called Handcuffed Secrets and in okay. that book, he describes how to do the Handcuff Act. And uh, that was in um, 1910 that he published that. And the idea was that he was going to eliminate that competition. It was his act. Why shouldn't he produce it, you know, and, and sell it?
0: Mm-hmm.
3: Uh, so now you want to be a handcuff artist? Get the book, <laughs> you know. So that's, a, that's good news and bad news. The bad news is now he's got to move on to something else. The Handcuff Act was pretty much done anyway because everybody was doing it. So now his new challenge was a $1,000. to Anyone who could lock him in anything that he couldn't get out of, and you would take home a $1,000 prize. Well, that was a fortune of money. You could buy uh, four pounds of meat for 25 cents in that time. So that was a lot of money. That's why there are challenges all over the world. He um, had the the milk can started where he could have dairy companies challenge him by uh, building a giant milk can, and he would escape from it. There were dairies everywhere. That was how people got milk. Uh, Back in the early days, there was every place you went, uh, they had their own dairy farms. And uh, so this was a way for the dairy companies to promote their product. And um, so this was a a win-win for Houdini and for the dairy companies. All of his challenges were so ingenious. The idea is when he came to town, he would accept so many challenges. If he's there for five days, he could accept five different challenges. Now, what challenges do you think he would accept? Do you think he would take the easiest, the most difficult? Uh, Give me an idea what you think he should
2: do. Uh, it, it, it it seems like he did enjoy the challenge. Uh, it, it, he just has a personality where it, it doesn't seem like it. He, he would just want to go for the e- easiest uh, trick. But
3: well, he went for the practical it, idea. Here's what he did. Okay. He took the challenge from the the company that had the most employees because now they're all going to manufacture this challenge. They're all going to buy tickets for themselves and their family. And <laughs> the, the promotion of the day was handbills, little flyers that you would go all over town, wherever people gathered, and you would hand out your information. So uh, that was like free publicity for Houdini. The, the employees of the, the people who are challenging houdini would do all the publicity so it wouldn't even it wouldn't even be difficult to draw the crowd it would be a sellout every time and um and then he if he was having a bad time selling tickets in a certain area he would show up a day before and do a spectacular challenge outside he would either hang out in front of the burn town and uh, do a straitjacket escape or if it's was a big Uh city, He'd hang upside down off of the tallest building in town and hopefully the newspaper building, because they're definitely going to do a story about it, and that would (laughs) surely bring the crowd. So at one point, uh, he was doing so well in Europe that he sent a telegram to his brother, Theodore, who was also, uh, he started off with his brother. I don't know, most people don't even know it. They started out with an act called the Houdini Brothers, there was a young man Houdini started with before his brother got involved, but the two of them, uh, Jack Heyman is the guy's name, and Jack got tired of the uh, working so hard and not making it. He figured the act wasn't going anywhere, so then his brother Theodore uh, took the place, and they became the Houdini brothers until Houdini met Beatrice, and then she became the assistant, and his brother Hardeen, uh, Theodore, also uh, known as Hardeen, he then went out on his own with the same act, pretty much the, exactly the same act, and uh, did shows separately. But Houdini then, when he was in Europe so successful, he sent this telegram to his brother saying, Come to Europe. The trees are ripe for picking. So there was enough work to share. Anytime Houdini was overbooked, uh, his agent would recommend this other guy who's uh, hardeen This other guy, he didn't he escape.
1: <laughs>
3: and they didn't tell anybody that they were brothers. They acted like competitors. And uh, so that was <laughs> a, a clever thing. But Houdini died in his brother's arms. And when they uh, broke, uh, when he uh, broke
4: up with his brother because he got married to Bess, it really took one of the stunts That was his early stunt that is still being done today, which is called Metamorphosis. And in the Metamorphosis, two people instantly changed places after being locked and tied inside of a trunk. But the genius of it when he got married was that it was much more dramatic and much more visual for it to be a man and a woman who changed places instead of two men. So that was the first stunt that really got him major bookings into major places uh, early in his career, just as he was starting to do the Handcuff Act.
2: Okay, and uh, Dick, that was all part of the uh, vaudeville era um, stage shows. Uh,
4: exactly. Yeah,
2: yes. It, it, that was uh, okay. And, yeah. It, it, yeah. That's interesting. It, you know, it's kind of, um, actually early yeah, on.
4: Uh, early on, before that period, they had the medicine shows, and the, that's okay. where Houdini actually started in the medicine shows. Where, uh, Dorothy, can you explain to him exactly what the medicine
3: show was about? This was a uh, the most important guy in that those early days of show business was the medicine man and he would uh book either bring a tent or he would book a big arena and have several stages around the the perimeter and so each act he'd have hired several different acts and each of the acts would perform on stage and then the audience would like shift to the next stage, to the next stage, to the next stage. And then at the end of all of that, the medicine man would come out on stage and he would sell this miracle cure, this magic elixir. This could cure anything, whatever you want, whatever you have. Do you have a backache, stomachache, whatever it is, it'll cure anything. And uh, I thought, how in the heck? He, they even- a lot of them claimed it would grow your hair back, you know it was
2: like and then
3: <laughs> and ladies, you can put it on your facial hair, it will remove your facial hair and uh, what happened is uh it was actually a very high content of alcohol so uh <laughs> so everybody loved the medicine man and the medicine show because <laughs> they could get their medicine quote uh <laughs> so it was very, very popular, and each of the performers were allowed to pitch a little souvenir, something that they could sell to help them get through to the next town and a little extra money to spend. Soudini being a magician, he probably sold magic tricks or magic decks and uh, gizmos and gadgets. Uh, And, uh, of course, all the acts would sell their souvenir uh, photos and little doodads, you know. So it was a very, very popular thing. The medicine man... Uh, there, if you look up on um, eBay, you'll see the old medicine bottles and some of the claims that they made. It was—it's very laughable now, you know. But we have a lot of the companies on TV, uh, the pharmaceutical companies that that pitch their stuff, and at the end of their pitch, they do the big long disclaimer. You know, ask your doctor, mm-hmm. blah blah blah, is right for you, and then they have this long, this guy talking real fast. This could cause all da- the side da- effects. Da- 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 da. Yeah, could sudden death. Some of the some of the side effects could be sudden <laughs> sudden death. Well, geez, okay, I'm out. <laughs> it could cause sudden death. You could be the only. You could be one of the five percent or the one point one percent that has the sudden death thing. Well, I think I'll stay away from that one. <laughs>
2: I, I, yeah, this is just a uh, you know wonderful recreation of you know like the medicine shows going into vaudeville and you know, a performer just being uh, you know, a solo act. It, it, yeah, that's what you know what a lot, what a lot of yeah, yeah a lot of
3: people a lot of people may not realize what vaudeville was. If you're young, you have no idea how wonderful this thing was. It would be a whole cadre of performers. It could be anywhere from five to ten acts on one stage, like one after another, after another, after another. Singers, dancers, jugglers, comedians, uh, uh, people doing skits, you know, and, of course, magic and Houdini the Escape Man, as well as his magic show. And it was very, very successful, very popular Martin Beck was a big producer, and uh, when he saw Houdini, um, it, it, was, it irked him because there is Martin Beck. He's this big deal producer. He's got shows all over the country, and uh, he, sees, he goes to the newspaper each day to try and see if his show gets mentioned in the paper. And there's this guy, Houdini. They're talking about Houdini. That's not one of his acts. And he's like, "What? The, who is this guy? So he goes to check out his show, and he he told Houdini at the time, you know, your act is great, but I can get a magician, but this thing you do with the that metamorphosis, that's that escape thing, and he called it an escape thing. He said that's uh, that's something that we should work on that more, and so he, and he ended sent, up booking Houdini uh, more for escapes.
4: It. Yeah, he sent in his own pair of handcuffs one night, and when Houdini got out of them he decided he would book him around the world
2: okay so, uh, is, is that uh, was that a moment when uh houdini you know, uh went from you know just a, a regional uh performer to
1: you know, yes, really becoming
2: internationally renowned yeah uh, so that, absolutely that, that, okay that was a, a transitional moment then. Okay. yes
3: it was life changing yes. he, he was making like $25 a week which was average pay in the day was good pay uh, and then uh, Martin Beck offered him $60 a week which was tremendous and then Houdini realized how successful he was for Martin Beck and he asked for $90 and more and to the point where at some point Houdini decided you know what they're coming to see me when when they book me on this thing, the audience is looking for me. So he decided that he would um, up his game a little bit and took a, a chance. He said, you know what, don't give me any more raises. Just give me a percentage of what money comes in, and I'll make sure the ticket sales are there. So he was more than willing to do these this spectacular thing outside the theater to draw tickets, you know, um, And uh, it was a win win for everybody. He was making money. The producers were making money. The theater made money. And the audience loved it.
2: And his wife was his assistant at the beginning. And uh, Jim Collins became. you know more of a permanent uh, assistant Yeah, well, his yeah, his assistants uh
3: were with him for his whole career. Uh Jim Collins and um oh geez, I'm drawing Kukul. a blank. Kukul. Uh, yeah, Franz Kukul. Franz Kukul. They uh they absolutely were committed to Houdini. They uh they love being a part of it and it was a team that was Immovable. They were the best together, and you would never get a secret out of any of any of them about how Houdini's doing this or that. Uh, they were totally committed to to the whole thing, um, and he couldn't have found better assistance. Wow. Well,
2: that's and, and you know, and they were traveling all around the world with him at, at, yes. at this time too. To, Okay. Okay. And let's see. What? Um. Where did uh, Harry get the stage name uh, Harry Houdini?
3: As a kid, when he was studying magic, he uh, he read a book about Houdin. Robert Houdin was the most popular magician. Uh, at the time, and it's not even a name that anybody today even heard of, um, but he was extremely popular uh, popular in Europe, and uh, Houdini wanted to be like him, and someone suggested, well, if you add an I to the, the name Houdan, you could be Houdini, which means to be like, and he, Houdini thought that that would be a compliment to Houdan, and
4: his I'm actual, not sure if... His actual name was Eric Weiss, and uh, so when he went into show business, he wanted to have a more theatrical name, so he took Houdan and added an eye and figured he could be like Houdan and maybe even thinking he'd get some work because of the similarity uh, in the two names, and Dorothy has his own her own unique theory about where he got the name Harry, I don't know if it's ready for publication, but she's working on it I don't know so right I'm, ready,
3: I'm ready to release it, but I have been, it's been bugging me my whole life. As ever since I'm a kid, where did he get Harry? And then people would say, oh, well, his best friend was Harry Keller, or his name was Eric Weiss, and his mother had an accent, a Hungarian accent, and she probably called him Harry, and it sounds like Harry. And so, maybe, no, then why wouldn't it be Harry? And, you know, so it it never sat right with me. And then I said, you know what, if you took a name from someone, you usually take a name from someone who's passed on. And his and his friend, Harry Keller, was very much alive. So I didn't ever buy that one. Uh, but I thought, you know what, there's got to be something. And maybe there's a family member that he took the name from. And, yeah, I, I do believe I figured it out. And I'm not sure if I'm ready to publish it yet, because I wanted to make sure that um, that I'm not going to make a fool of myself. But I'm very, very like ninety nine point nine nine nine
2: percent sure. Okay. Well, when you get that point zero zero one percent, yeah, fine. fine <laughs> just to, uh, come back. We'll give you an exclusive on it. But Marvelous. what? Yeah. You know, what? yeah you, know, you can watch uh some of the uh escapes on youtube videos you know uh, Barbara and I are watching uh uh you know one of the straitjacket one or is uh, ho- hoisted up you know' like Dick was saying you know uh, in front of the newspaper office to make sure that <laughs> you know this big uh story in a town is covered since it's happening on your property. It just great <laughs> yeah. marketing strategies. But uh you, know, you can see you know, a variety of the uh you know, surviving uh, uh movie clips on YouTube and uh, maybe in, uh in, in a little bit we can get into um yes you know, some of the uh escapes from the, the movies he was in, and um you know, I, I do want to uh talk a little bit about the uh man from beyond at, at some point but you know when uh you know you watch the archival footage you know the whole town shows up and uh you know, it only takes him like three minutes to get out of the straitjacket. i if if that but you know he, he's also working with the uh police. And it just seemed like he had uh, a, a good rapport with, you know, uh, you know the town officials, you know, the uh, the audience, uh, you know, really seemed to. Yeah,
3: uh, well, that's a know, big, really plus in- with, big plus with Houdini was that he was very personable and very charming. He was a good, good-looking guy, and uh, a lot of his escapes he would do. Uh, In just a little skimpy uh, swimsuit, kind of little tiny tank, you know, just barely covering himself Mm -hmm. up. And in some cases, he was even advertising that he would do it totally naked. Like some of the prisons, they would take all of his clothes, like a prison escape, all of his clothes, (laughs) and put his clothes outside the jail cell, saying, "Yeah, you'll be needing these when you get out. And uh, uh, so... That was probably pretty um uh, pretty cool for the period because people were very modest back then, and so I would say that that was kind of um another um a piece of interest you know that that drew people to Houdini that there he is this this wild and crazy guy that is uh, in, in doing impossible things without anything on, like with no clothes on. And I'm sure that the gals wanted to get a peek at that guy anyway, because he was pretty buff. <laughs> it, and he,
2: it, and it, 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 it looks like, um, uh, you know, for, from a, a lot of the photos that he did, uh, you know, have a... Exercise regimen. Yeah, he he really, Harry really wasn't a very uh, tall man. No, uh, I see. Yeah,
3: well, he people were shorter in the time though. Uh, He was five foot five, but people weren't very tall like we are now, Um, and that's probably because they didn't have all of the the things that we, the additives that have been on, been put in our food for decades, you know, that uh, could be the cause of some of that, you know, the growth hormones and all that that they put mm-hmm. in our beef and, and food. And uh, so, yeah, I think that had a lot to do with it. But um, regardless of his size, I think he was in some cases a little um, uh, insecure about being in pictures with next to tall people like his from Downs there is a picture of him standing next to T. Nelson Downs and Houdini decided to do it there's like a little slope there so Houdini stands a little bit up on the slope and on his tiptoes which is so comical to see he probably thought the photographer was taking the shot from the waist up or something you know (laughs) but there he is on his tiptoes And, and like, putting his elbow on his friend's shoulder, you know, to try to look like they were head-to-head and the height. And we have
4: that that particular picture on display uh, at the museum in the history room uh, because we have one display devoted to Houdini uh, and to T. Nelson Downs because he was the one actually that told Houdini, uh, go to Europe. I became a star in Europe. So that was one of the things that made Houdini uh, want to go to Europe. And, uh, yeah, that's that where was he life-changing. Did... Yeah, he challenged... Beck sent him there, and he challenged Scotland Yard, and he would challenge police. And he always had good relationships with the police. Uh, and also, any time he would visit a new town, especially in Europe, he would go visit every locksmith in the town. And because he knew so much about American locks, he would tell them what he knew. But also, they knew about European locks, which Houdini quickly had to er educate himself about, because there were locks that probably Houdini had never seen uh, in the United States. And he knew he would have to confront those locks uh, as he traveled to Russia, to Germany, to France, to England, and he had to surpass uh and and beat any of those challenges that he might confront
2: Yeah, and, and you know you know dorothy was telling us a little bit about you know uh, conditioning of his body and uh you know he you know he was just a uh uh what she said a buff guy but he also uh you had had to train himself uh mentally to do some of these uh uh stunts on stage you know like being submerged upside down uh and you know uh, you know when we first started uh the show we were talking about uh uh, uh the recreation of uh, uh, uh these stunts uh for for the a uh, uh, mini series that aired a couple months ago and to so, you know he, H- H- harry's um just not you know j- just getting dunked in a, a pool and, and you know he he had to mentally prepare himself for the disorientation uh, possibly water going up his nose. Uh, just uh, there, there was a lot of preparation to his, his uh, stage shows. Uh, can you Absolutely. tell us a little bit about he that? Was, yes, he was a
4: terrific athlete. Uh, as a teenager, he used to swim up and down uh, the East River because uh, they lived on the uh, in Manhattan. Uh, I don't know if you could do that now with all the pollution, but he would swim up and down the East River. He was also a track star. Uh, He won medals uh, for track and field and running. Uh, He was uh, an amateur boxer. He was very, very physically fit, and he kept that up even to the end of his life. When he lived uh, on the Upper West Side, he would jog around Central Park. So he was a fabulous athlete and kept that up. And also the other thing, that he realized when he was in a situation that he had to uh, conquer fear. In other words, the worst thing you could do is be frightened and uh, afraid. So he learned and trained himself in the worst condition, uh, physical condition that you might be put into to relax and be calm and analyze the situation and not panic. And uh, that was one of the keys uh, to his success.
2: Wow, oh, it's yeah, just, just seeing the stunts done on that uh, uh mini series uh yeah you, there, there just seems like uh, you know he, he almost had to put himself into like a uh, uh a army boot camp frame of mind to uh, uh accomplish these tasks. It's Absolutely. just very, I, yeah.
4: Absolutely, it, I cannot. I cannot imagine Houdini going into a water tank. Can you imagine this great athlete and performer and entertainer going into a water tank and putting nose plugs on, like you see magicians do today? You, it would be laughable. Wow. Uh, Houdini was able to do these things without even nose pl- a set of nose plugs to help him out. He was uh, just amazing, and he was also a great engineer and inventor because he invented every one of his tricks never existed before he came along. There was no milk can escape. There was no escape from handcuffs as as a stage act. There was no escape from anything you put me into, I'll get out of it. Houdini invented these uh, concepts. There was no upside down that uh, he would do uh, in a water tank or an upside down in a, a straight jacket. Uh, he discovered the straitjacket when he went to an insane asylum to visit and do a show early on in his career. And he saw a straitjacket. And decided to do the straitjacket escape. But like a lot of his escapes, which Dorothy explained, he would do it behind the curtain. So he would do it behind the curtain and he would get out and come out. And then his brother, who was his buddy, his brother said, You know what? I tried it one time in front of everybody and let them see how difficult it is. And it's even better. So Houdini took that from his brother with his brother's blessing and Houdini then began began to do it on stage in front full view and even uh, to do it uh, outdoors uh, in front uh, in full view. So it became even more sensational because it is clearly so difficult uh, to get out of. And so it's a very dramatic, if it's done right, it's a very dramatic uh, presentation. And uh, in fact, if all the years that magicians would do that, they would copy Houdini. And how Houdini did it uh, is he would roll on the ground, he would push up against the wall, he would jump up and down. And in fact, there's video that we show at the museum uh, how he rolls on the floor and pushes and struggles. And that's how it was done traditionally uh, for decades and decades, even. Uh, After Houdini died, and then Dorothy was the first person to do it in full view, but not rolling on the ground. And why that is, is because she felt it would not be very feminine. Uh, She always, although she does these things that she does, she didn't want to be masculine and roll on the floor and bounce around. She thought it would not look good for a woman to do that. So she developed almost a Zen yoga way of slowly getting out, standing in front uh, of the audience and wiggling in such a way that she would get out. And oddly enough, now everybody that does the straight jacket escape uh, possibly is doing it Dorothy's way and they don't credit her. And when Dorothy first did the straight jacket escape, many people would say, especially magicians, Oh, that's not for a woman. Put her in a straitjacket. It's ugly, and it's and and now any woman that wants to be a magician, guess what they do? The first thing they do is Dorothy's stand-up straitjacket escape. So it's a great thing that when she started out, not only did she do it that way, then in an effort to because people did not accept women. Uh, As a magician, when Dorothy started out, Uh, every magician uh, pretty much was a man. There was no woman of any consequence in the entire world that was a woman. There was one many years ago that inherited a family business called Adelaide Herman, uh, but she was part of a dynasty. But there was no real woman of consequence uh, in magic, in fact, pretty much since then. Uh, there was one other in the war years by the name of Del O'Dell. In fact, Dorothy, out of respect to some of these women that came ahead of her, she's put up two websites. One is called joanbrandon.com, which was a female magician uh, that became the world's greatest hypnotist in her day. And there was another one, uh, Del O'Dell, who was called the Queen of Magic. She was. They were both like in the 40s. But then there were no magicians, female magicians, uh, to come along. So in order for her to get work, she'd go to an agent and they'd say, well, you must be the person that gets cut in half, or you must be the per." When does the real magician come? When? Yeah, I know it's laughable. When does the real magician uh, show up? And then she'd do, she'd get booked on a job uh, and, and the agent would say, well, if you take your clothes off, we can get you a lot of work. Well, Dorothy never did that. She never dressed as a man, but by like a lot of women do in the tuxedo, which she felt was too masculine. Uh-huh. But by, by the same token, she never dressed uh, very skimpy clothes. And uh, like you picture the typical uh, magician's assistant, she would always have a pants out uh, that was feminine or a gown or that kind of thing. And then she had to do things to supersede what other people were doing. And she said, how do I do this? Well, she said, let me find some things that even the men won't do. So that's how come she developed Hanging Upside Down, which was a home box office special called The World's Greatest Escapes, which to this day is the best special uh, ever on TV. The title of it gives it away, The World's Greatest Escapes. And she was... Special guest star on that show, and what she did was the straight jacket from a burning rope from a parachute ride, hundreds of feet in the air, and they would not bring her down on, and take from the burning rope until she got out or the rope burned through. And that was uh, on home box office, and to this day, nobody has copied that exact presentation of the straitjacket escape, and she had no guide wires. Cousine, when he hung upside down, would have an extra guide wire attached to him on the building in case something slipped on the one that he... He didn't use a burning rope, but he had a guide wire that in case something happened to the one he was hanging from the rope, it would save his life. Dorothy had a burning rope and no guide wires, and she did it hundreds of feet in the air. She's the only not only she's the only woman to ever do such an escape. There's been a few magicians that have tried the burning rope. By the way, one of two of them uh, nearly died or broke a lot of bones because they fell. And then she said, what else can I do that will gain the respect of my peers, not just women, but the men as well? So she became the first and only woman in history, even today, to do the bullet catch where she would catch a bullet uh, in her mouth. And she does, she's done it several times under challenge conditions where the committee would buy the bullets. They would bring them under guard uh, so that nobody could tamper with them. And they would bring them and then they get a marksman to fire. And it would always be p- pretty much point blank, but between her and the rifleman, would be a sheet of glass, which again could be inspected or brought in by the committee, a sheet of glass to show the bullet as it goes through, and she catches it. And she's done that uh, several times. And again, no woman uh, on earth has ever done that particular stunt. So that's why she has, uh, she's actually becoming a legendary figure uh, in, in the magic profession.
2: Yeah, uh, I, I, uh, you aren't going to see me doing that, or being <laughs> hu- hu- hung upside down uh, two hundred feet uh, in a straitjacket either. So, I, <laughs> yeah, it, yeah, Dor- Dorothy, I, 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 I don't know how you do that. Um, I, I, it was, yeah, you can still see the videos on YouTube, and what uh, Tony Curtis is the. Hosted that show, it, it, yes. yeah. So you're working with him. Uh, he's uh, narrating uh, what's going on while you get hoisted uh, with the flaming rope, and uh, it, it's uh, uh, just compelling. Watching. I'll tell you
3: what, I did it, but it's hard for me to watch it. <laughs> it is hard for me to watch it. I, I'm like, is in my throat for a few seconds, and I'm like. Uh, well we already know you, you're okay you're gonna be fine <laughs> but it is it is really uh very dramatic to watch that one was awesome uh the i think uh sadly i some of the escapes that i did i don't have on video So, was one i did at um roosevelt stadium and they had a crane they they said how how big of a crane do you want? And I said, well, however, have, however big you want it to be. I mean, I just you got to make sure that it's tall enough that I'm hanging off the ground. You know, if the if the crane is too small, I won't. You know, you've got to have rope. I'm got to be hanging from the rope and then hanging from a, a piece of chain so that the chain, um, you know, that your crane doesn't start on fire. You've got to have a little bit of space there. So you've got to have like ten feet between me and the rope. And um, get the highest one you can. So it was a 300 foot crane. <laughs> 300 feet. I didn't know they got that
2: big. <laughs> so yeah, it was uh, pretty
3: dramatic, uh, needless to say.
2: Yeah. Uh, okay, go, 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 go ahead, Dick.
4: And, yeah, and some of the things she's done uh, in her show. Uh, because there's such, uh, it's a competitive field. Uh, uh, she doesn't put all of her routines on YouTube because what happens is the next week there'll be uh, 10 uh, girls wanting to be magicians, copying her lines and her jokes and her routines. Uh, so for instance, she does a routine where she says, for 100 years, men have been sawing and cutting women in half, and now I think it's time for women to cut men in half. And the whole audience cheers and goes crazy. And she did that on the Tom Snyder show. And she also did it with Robert Klein on one of the Robert Klein uh, television Mm -hmm. specials uh, when he was on, she cut him on in half on TV and we have that on video and people say, well, why don't you put that up? Why? Because, you know, there'll be 40 other people out there doing it. So she has a lot of routines that she does that, uh, uh, just they stopped the show, uh, and it's just it's wonderful to see her live. She performs live here when she can at the Houdini Museum in Scranton uh, when we're open. Occasionally she'll travel. Uh, uh, in the winter time she'll travel, but then in the summer for 60 days in a row, she's here at the museum, and in fact this year we're talking about expanding the show And making it even longer. It's an hour show now. And we're talking about expanding it. Because it's one of the most impressive and key things. There's no show like it this side of Las Vegas. She floats a person in the air. Passes a hoop around them. Uh, Like I said, she saws a man in half. She does her flash act where she produces about six doves and a rabbit. And a couple of ducks and a poodle. uh, All And that particular act that she does is her opening flash act. And the reason she developed that, again, like I said before, when she would uh, perform somewhere, people would yell out, when are you going to bring the real magician out? Take your clothes off. So she decided what she would do was she would come out to real hot music the first three minutes, and she'd do more tricks in three minutes than most magicians do in half hour and 20 minutes. So she does one trick after another, bing, bang, boom. They're all very fast, nothing slow or long drawn out. And at the end of that three minutes or four minutes, at the end of that, she gets sometimes a standing ovation just for the opening. And at that point, there's no doubt, yes, this woman can do magic, no question. Uh, what else can you see? And what else does she have? To show us, so that works very effectively uh, for her, and a version of that routine she's done her entire career, and she updates it from time to time.
2: Yeah, uh, uh, Dorothy. Um, it, it, like we were t- talking about you know, with the, uh, yes, yeah, the uh, you and the three hundred foot.
0: Uh, Crane,
2: the others, uh, the stuff that uh, Dick was just mentioning, Um, uh, you know, when I was in junior high and high school, um, doing something like that um, probably never crossed my mind, Uh, even doing radio shows. Yeah, uh, that wasn't uh, in uh, you know, the plans either until you know, just you know, uh, you know, Barbara gets gets me involved with this. You know, just tell me I mean, you're working for me now. That uh, that was my job interview, and I didn't even say anything. But um, but yeah, it, 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 how did? you get interested in magic and you know your fascination with harry houdini uh to turn this well, into a yeah. career
3: several things when i was a kid i was very fortunate the the school that i went to had an old fashioned auditorium with uh, rake seating, which means you know like the seats are the floor is slanted toward the stage, so that oh, it's okay. like a real theater Unfortunately, nowadays, a lot of the elementary schools have um what they call a multi purpose room, and that room is not only the auditorium it's also the lunch room, it's the gym. It basically Uh looks like a gym, and they do all the other activities that they normally would have several rooms for. They used to have an auditorium for any theatrical uh, events that they would have. They also had a gym for sports. They had a music room with good acoustic sound for for their band and musical uh, education. And now it's all one room. Well, I was very fortunate. They had this beautiful auditorium. They had a stage with a red curtain on stage, uh, beautifully lit with red lighting. Uh, the, so with you can imagine how dreamy it was with the red lights on the red stage, red curtain. and uh, it just, honest to goodness, it just took you to another place. It was so I've never seen anything like that. And I was a poor kid, so I wasn't like a kid that was going to theaters or anything. I never had even been in an actual real theater at that point. And I I was just blown away. I just blown away. I thought, how fabulous is this? And then the principal came up on the stage and said that we are uh, presenting a very important person here today. We're going to have a magician. And I didn't have a clue what he was talking about. And then the show began, this guy comes out on stage and he's doing one trick after another and it was amazing, it was amazing, I was totally blown away and it didn't take long, it was like few seconds before I started realizing, holy cow, this is the entire crowd is mesmerized by this guy, They he is giving everybody here a gift and I couldn't, figure out what this gift was but i knew it was like something special that is not normal this isn't just like normal everyday stuff and i didn't realize until much later that the gift that you a magician gives the audience is that feeling of wonder when they take you away and you don't have a clue what they're doing what is going on it is just everything they're doing is impossible it's they make impossible possible not only possibly doing it and i thought uh-huh. instantly i thought if this guy gets paid to do this this is who i want to be <laughs> i want to be this guy i want to be i want to be giving these gifts to people i want to bring people to this kind of feeling and this i mean it's a, a feeling when you're watching somebody do the impossible right i mean if you think about it it's amazing, and who doesn't want to be amazed? So uh, I, I said to my teacher, what is that, and how do, do is that something that people get paid to do? And uh, so they uh, directed me to the library and said, why don't you go look it up, you know, and see what you can find out. So I got a book about uh, magic, and it was called Houdini on Magic. And it was written by a gentleman that didn't meet until later, who um, his name was Walter B. Gibson, who I don't know if you know that name, but he was um, the person who wrote the Shadow series. Who knows what evil lurks in the hearts Mm -hmm. of men? The Shadow knows. And so now that's good enough. But here's what happened: is when I put together an act, and I thought, well, I, I I had to leave home. I didn't really feel that I had a choice. I, my father was not a good person. He was a a worthless alcoholic. He beat my mom and the kids, and I felt I felt totally hopeless, helpless, and I thought I can't stay here any longer. I this, this I'm not living. This is killing me, and if he doesn't kill me. He's killing me on the inside if he doesn't physically kill me. And I thought, I just have to go. The only way I can help my mom is if I just go, get out of here. So I had, since I was a little kid, started raising money so that I I wasn't going to be a beggar when I left home. Uh, I knew that I had to have some kind of big amount of cash, and I didn't know what big is. Uh, I didn't have a clue what everything costs. But I figured if I have enough money, then I can be independent and I don't have to be desperate. I don't ever want to be desperate. And uh, so if I saw somebody doing any kind of chores, I had my little magic act together, but basically that was pretty tough because I'm not a booker. I didn't have a clue how to do it. Uh, So I ended up doing a lot of shows and asked people, well, just give me whatever you think, you know, just give me a few bucks. And uh, But if I saw someone raking leaves, I'd say, oh, geez, I am so good at raking leaves. If you let me do it, I'm not kidding. You're going to be so happy. Just give me whatever you think you can afford. And so I did that. I'd say, oh, geez, I'm such a good painter. Let me finish that for you. You won't believe how good it's going to look. And um, every time, I would say, just pay me what you think you can afford. And they'd always give me more money than I thought I would have asked. You know,
0: And uh, Uh
3: so when I got $3,000 saved up, and that's even after my father had stolen my money because he thought, uh, he said, kids don't need any money. Why do you have money? You don't need money. You need to steal my money. And he would drink the money too. Um, uh, So my girlfriend's older brother um, was very, very, Happy, He was uh, bragging all over the place that he's going to New York City to uh, drive this sports car, a little red sports car for one of the local car dealers that wants to sell it in the city. So he was all bragging he's going to be a smooth guy driving this thing to New York. And I said to my girlfriend, ask him if he'll take me with, it, with him. I, I want to go to New York. She said, what? What, what are you talking about? I said, I got to get out of here. You know what my life is. I got to get out of here. That would be perfect if I go to New York. She said, Well, what are you going to do in New York? I said, I don't know. I'm not going to be here. That's what I'm going to be doing in New York. Something. I'll get a career. I'll get a life. And so she said, She asked him, and he said, Yeah, yeah, I could use some company on the ride. So little did he know, I'm like really way underage. He should never have done that. But he did, and uh, he never asked me, what are you going to do when you get there? You know, he never, it was like really funny. wasn't even curious. So then we get to New York, and he says, uh, what are you going to do? I said, well, i got to find a place to live. I said, well, how are you going to do that? And I, like, he's like, oh, come on. I said, I'm going to get the newspaper and see where, who's got something to rent. You know, I've got to rent a place to live. So I got to the newsstand, which is one on every two blocks. And uh, so I get to the newsstand, and there's this newspaper called Show Business Newspaper. And I thought, wow, man, this is like, this couldn't be any easier. And uh, so I go to the back of the newspaper, and there's an ad that three gals are looking for another gal to share their apartment with. And the, the my share of the rent would be 150 a month yes, this this is doable. I can do this. I don't have to be a beggar. I can be who I want to be. I can, and I can just be whoever I want to be. I don't have to go get a job while I'm trying to be a magician. I can just hold out and, you know, pay in the rent and I don't need much. So I went to the grocery store and tried to figure out, all right, so how much does everything cost? And I found they had a package of frozen waffles. They were four packs for a dollar and there were eight waffles in a pack. And I thought, whew, I can live on waffles. I love waffles. And uh, I had uh, got a toaster and I figured in the morning I'll have as many waffles as I want. I'll hit the road. I'll get a, buy a piece of fruit midday and I'll get back to the apartment and eat however many waffles I want for dinner. <laughs> and I should be good. And, and i did it and you know what to this day i still love waffles i think they're the, they're awesome and uh so that really honest to goodness I, that was the first time i felt free and i didn't feel judged i didn't feel um that i was going to get beaten every every day i didn't feel like somebody was Gonna tell me,
1: oh, you're a loser. Ah, yeah, you nothing. You're never gonna be anything.
3: Ah, you know, there was no, none of that. It was all gone. It was all gone. It was the first time I ever felt really free. And uh, so, the good thing is, lots of good things. The the gals that I was staying with were all in show business, or they wanted to be. And so they um, kind of taught me the ropes. They said, well, you need you need a resume. You need pictures and resume. And I said, "Oh, well, what do I, where do I get all of that?" And so they helped me put together the resume. And I feel bad that I don't have a copy of that original resume because they they pretty much put it all together. I said, "Well, what do you say in the resume?" And they said, "Well, the, the places you've worked, the things you've done." And I was like, "Okay, I did. There's nothing. I got nothing to tell." They said, "You just make it up. They don't. They don't read it." And so I said, okay. So they made up a whole bunch of stuff that I was doing and did and uh, we would go to the agents. They have a thing um, uh, called go-sees. You have to go see the agent. And uh, so there was a whole flock of agents that were in, in that, you know, booking society bookings and, you know, parties for society groups. And uh, so you'd go every day to a different town where these agents' offices are. And you show up, you wait in the you wait in the office, and they call you in, and you chit-chat, and then they say, well, do you have a picture and resume? Oh, yes, yes, here we go. And then they take the picture and the resume, and you don't know what they do with it, but every time you go back, they ask you for another picture and a picture and resume. So yeah, one could assume that they don't really hold on to them unless they really, really want you. And uh, so... You go through a whole lot of them by the time, <laughs> and then at some point, I, I was like, "Do you really need the envelope?" <laughs> because I figured maybe I don't have to buy envelopes. <laughs> you know, he's not, the guy's just gonna put it. He's just gonna put it in the garbage. I don't think they're keeping these things. And uh, so, yeah, I I got so many agents that uh, their main interest was uh, they'd say things like. Oh, you're a beautiful gal, you know, you should be in porn, you should do porn, you should just you take your clothes off. You'll make a lot of money. I'm not kidding, more money than you ever imagined. you make a lot, you'd be working day and night. And I said, well, I really don't want to work day and night. I really would like to make a lot of money but not taking my clothes off because someday I might become a mom or a grandmom and I wouldn't want those pictures to show up. Or those videos to show up and people to be embarrassed that this was me. So, yeah, that's not gonna happen. You're interested in, then we can't work together. And that would be sad because I really am very talented. And so I kind of never closed doors. That was my thing. Don't close doors. If somebody acts like a jerk, that's them. You don't have to be a jerk back. Just let them be whoever they are and just try to be yourself, whatever yourself is. And I just wanted to have a good self-image that I could be proud of. And I, I decided really early on I want to be a role model. I don't want to be caught doing something that, oh, yeah, I was young. I didn't know any better. You know how a lot of the uh, a lot of the people in show business they're like, oh well, yeah, and you find these nude pictures of. <laughs> we even have nude pictures of the first lady. Oh well, oops.
2: All right. Yeah, you have uh, Dorothy. You have a empowering story. I think uh, a couple weeks ago when, uh, you know we had uh. Benny is our guest. Uh, you know, she was also d- displaying uh, being a, another great role model. So thank, thank you for the, uh, touch, touching the audience with um, just being an, an empowered person.